Welcome to Spirit in Action. My name is Mark Helpsmeet, and each week we bring you visits and conversations with people doing healing work for this world, hearing what they're doing and what inspires them and supports them in doing it. Welcome to Spirit in Action. Today for Spirit in Action, we're going to be learning a bit about the process of equipping workers for peace, including in the most challenging of situations. Our guest is Nadine Hoover, and she was a visitor to the Northern Yearly Meeting three-day session I was at recently. This is a regional gathering this year, about 250 Quakers from mostly Wisconsin, Minnesota, and I was working, as I usually do, with the middle school youth. When we had a visit from Nadine Hoover to talk about her work as a peacemaker, an activist, a trainer, and a writer, she's worked as an international project manager and with Friends Peace Teams and as a trainer for the Alternatives to Violence Project, with much of that work happening in Indonesia and Southeast Asia. So Nadine stopped by to spend 30 to 45 minutes helping the middle school teens learn some skills at peacemaking. I thought it might help you get a glimpse of one small corner of Nadine's skills and resources to hear her jump in and walk the teens through some thinking, planning, and sharing on how to make change peacefully. She started out by reading a story with an example of effective peace and justice activism. So... I'm going to read you a story. It's a really short story. It's just this page. It's called Experiment in Fairness. And it's by Baird Rustin. Anybody heard of Baird Rustin? No. Okay. Anybody heard of Martin Luther King? All righty-o. We got that one down. Okay. Baird Rustin was an African-American Quaker gay guy who was... Martin Luther's king, number one strategist. But he was behind the scenes because he was, it was a little dangerous at that point for him. Baird Rustin. This is the guy that did a lot of the strategy that was behind the civil rights movement. And he was a Quaker guy. Between speaking engagements in a Midwestern college town, I went into a small restaurant to buy a hamburger and a glass of milk. I had not been sitting in the restaurant long before I noticed that I was being ignored. After waiting about Bayard Rustin faces the racism he was dealing with in the diner, finds a way to calmly, compassionately, but firmly get the woman running the restaurant to agree to a little experiment which leads her to completely flip her compliance with Jim Crow segregation methods, not just for Bayard, but for all blacks. After reading the story, Nadine got the teens thinking about what led to that successful outcome and got the teens to share cases where they had seen unfairness effectively opposed in groups of two or four and then with the whole group of about 16. She'd comment on the methods that the teens had noticed worked and would amplify and give further examples of how things like food and hospitality can open up possibilities for peaceful connection. We have an office in the United Nations And when countries are not allowed to speak to each other, they can't go to meetings and talk to each other, Quakers have a place, we call it quiet diplomacy, and we just invite them for tea with no agenda. We don't publicize it, we don't advertise it, we just bring them in the room. And it's one of the only places they can actually officially meet each other and talk to each other. And it just solves incredible problems. So food, staying calm, what was it on? Logically resolved. 
And if Nadine can do that in half an hour with young teens, you can be sure that she's amazing with more time while training adults. Nadine Hoover has amazing stories to share facing severe trauma and sometimes in absolutely frightening situations. And she now joins us in person at the Northern Yearly Meeting Session. Nadine, thank you so very much for joining me for Spirit in Action. Hi, Mark. Thanks for having me. It's nice to be here. And it was especially good to have you working with the younger teens here at Northern Yearly Meeting, a group I've co-facilitated for, I don't know, 10, 15 years or something like that. They were really engaged, and you have a masterful style of teaching, of conveying the information about peace training. How long have you been doing that kind of work? It feels like all my life. I think my parents and the Quaker community I grew up in was involved with the peace training for the peace movement, the civil rights movement, that later became the AVP, the Alternative Surveillance Project training. We did the training in the 70s in New York around the Movement for a New Society work and the civil rights work and the peace movement work. So it really set the tone for my life because I was young enough, I believed it. Young people actually believe these things, you know. I believed peace was possible. I believed that we stood up for it and I believed that we took responsibility for our society. I went to Pine Ridge Reservation in South Dakota under Friends World College when I was with Friends World College and lived there for a couple of years. And then I went to South Korea right after the head of the Korean CIA shot the president. That was in 1980 when the U.S. introduced sensory deprivation torture, first introduced into Korea. So we received the first crew that came back out of that. We had no idea. It was totally a totally different world. We did a lot of training on, you might get picked up, you might disappear, you might be tortured. How are you going to deal with that? How do you receive people when they come back? But when sensory deprivation torture was introduced, that was a total tailspin. I went from there down into Indonesia and worked in Indonesia from late 1980 until now. I went into project work for quite a lot. I thought we could figure it out and fix it, you know, a good sort of white privilege perspective today, you would call it, you know, we just got to figure it out and fix it. But after about 18 years in project work, I was supporting the, the peace training, though. My kids, my oldest daughter, Fena, became a facilitator of adult trainings in 1993. There was a lot of racial violence she was in a junior high school, and we had brought Lisa Monday and Eric Wiesa down from Syracuse. Eric was the one that developed the Help Increase the Peace project, which was the adaptation of AVP to young people. And we brought that down to Florida in 1993, and so Fena got training there. And then some adults, Stephen Angel was there and was training people in Florida, and some adults wanted to do a training up in Augusta, Georgia. And so when this adult team said, can Fenna come to Augusta, Georgia with us and run this train? I'm like, sure, that's fine. She went up and she said, mom, they weren't getting ready. They were all standing around the coffee machine. I'm like, we got to prepare. She said, they weren't listening to me. So she stood up on a chair and she said, you need to come over here and get prepared. <laughs> she said, I just led the team because they weren't doing what they needed to do. And so ever since then, they were very impressed with her work. And ever since then, she's been a trainer. My second daughter, Sarah, also became a trainer in the 90s. But I was involved in a lot of project work at that time. But after about 18 years of international consulting, it's like, we're not going to figure this out and fix it. 
It's a fundamental decisions. It's fundamental choices about our lives and what kind of lives we're going to have. And so I quit the international consulting and I was just going to go back to the farm, work in my community, do massage therapy. But in December 2004, the global tsunami hit the big one and it hit Aceh. And in 1999, I had supported Peace Brigades International to bring teams into Aceh. And Aceh had been closed for 30 years. They had been in a war, U.S.-supported and funded war in Aceh that we don't even know about. You know, it's really sad the way our funds are used when we don't ask. But anyway, when the tsunami hit them, they were like, People, please come and help. And I'm like, there's going to be lots of money. There's going to be lots of people to help. You don't need me. But then the Achenese started calling, say, please come. These people, they don't know anything. They don't speak the language. They don't understand Aceh. And so I went into Aceh in early January of 2005 with a letter, a minute of introduction with from my meeting. And I visited villages in Aceh. And they said, why do people care so much about the tsunami? Like, they don't care about us. If they cared about us, they would have cared when we had a war. The war hits day after day after day. The tsunami just hit one day. And the whole world cares. Like, I don't understand. And so this attending, this paying attention to people who are survivors of war was much more critical to them in many ways than the survivors of the tsunami. People would come through with their clipboards and want to know how many houses, how many boats, you know, how many... I'd sit there and I'd watch this and then they'd all go away and as the sun's going down, I'd say, how many of you had houses when the tsunami hit? And they'd kind of look around and they'd go, and they'd start laughing. I go, not me. My house got burned down three times. I quit building them. You know, like, nope, that's not a good idea. So, you know, we, we would sit there and talk. Oh, the minute from my meeting, it said, we commend Nadine to your care, which was a big deal to them. They took that seriously. And she brings with her our faith in the living spirit that gives life, joy, peace, and prosperity through love, integrity, and compassionate justice among those who live in simplicity, equality, and nonviolence. And they looked at that sentence and they said, you know how to do that? And I'm like, yes, we actually know how to do that. That's what we want to learn how to do. Probably since that time, sort of mid-2005, we started sharing with them the Alternatives to Violence Project workshop. They really, that was so helpful. And then we have expanded that to incorporate the tools that we have found necessary for ourselves in order to be able to do the peace work. So our peace training now has expanded to integrating the trauma understanding, which came in the 1980s. The Alternatives to Violence Project training was developed in the late 60s and 70s, and the manual is from 1975. So trauma, Judith Herman published Trauma Recovery in 1983. So our understandings of trauma have really been since then. So we started integrating that work. We started integrating the work of developmental play and understanding that violence erodes fundamental cognition and that we get gaps in thinking. You get this higher order operation, but it's very rigid. It can't generalize. It's not creative. It's not innovative. It's high order, but it's very rigid. And if you can go back to the developmental play of preschool, if they'll just play for an hour a week 
within six months, totally different people. Flexible, creative, innovative. It's just amazing to watch. You know, Nadine, the person I interviewed before with Connection to Friends Peace Teams, and maybe there have been a couple, but I remember the first one I interviewed about it was Anna Sandich, who was working in the office, I think, in St. Louis relative to Friends Peace Teams. She had made some travel over to Africa dealing with that. When you talk about trauma healing, it's such a big deal. In my travels with the Friendly Folk Dancers, where I've been to Kenya, Rwanda, and the Congo, the people you know, trauma healing, trauma healing, trauma healing is such a big deal. I don't think we have an American point of view. I and mean, we talk about going to therapy or something like that, but we don't really have a sense of communal trauma healing that AVP and the work of Friends Peace Teams and other groups. I mean, there's been a lot of people working on this for years. My question is, you're starting in from Indonesia, and you know your ex-husband was from Indonesia. Your two daughters, uh, I think they both speak the language there, are conversant equally. They've gotten involved in peace training. But your work has been wider than that because I understand that you've had stuff in Russia and Georgia, that is to the Republic of Georgia, and other places. So 2005, you start doing this peace training, and then from there, you continue on to where? In 2005, I, we started doing it in Indonesia, in Aceh, which is the north tip of the island of Sumatra. There were people from Java who were there and said, this isn't just good for the recovery from war. We need to recover from colonization, from hundreds of years of being put down and repressed, and the whole distortions and trauma that come from colonization. What's happened is that, especially with the internet today, people know each other. And so we get to know other peace activists in different areas who say, we need the tools too. We need those tools too. So we opened up the training in central Java and we bring in people from the Philippines, from Korea, from Nepal, from New Zealand, from Chechnya, from Ukraine. And so they've, we've been coming together in central Java to practice in January each year for a couple weeks to really practice the tools that we need to be able to do on the ground peace and justice work and stay healthy while we do it. And we have been astonishingly successful. I think that recently there is a, an understanding at higher levels that climate change is a real threat. I think there is a real concern that we need to start doing things right and honestly, but they don't have the information they need to operate. So working on the ground, if we can really get the right information to the right people, they're making some major difference. But you need to be able to bring together justice and development or capabilities. So we're working with Subas and some of the people, the Community Self-Reliance Center in Nepal and the National Land Rights Movement. The National Land Rights Movement is landless and land poor people who are self-organizing. And they've organized 120,000 people. They're getting changes in their constitution. They're going into local elections. They are getting recognized in government and they're rights recognized. But then they realized if you don't have the developmental levels to take advantage of that justice, 
you can't use it. It goes away. And so they've adopted the training, this extended training that we've done in creating cultures of peace, and they've started adopting that for their movement. It, I think it is one of, if it isn't the largest nonviolent movement in Asia right now, it is one of the largest ones. So I think we just hopped to Nepal from Java, and I mean we're we're moving around a bit, and you've moved around constantly. You've been traveling, but your mention of creating cultures of peace, I think, it's real important for our listeners to be able to connect with Nadine Hoover and the things you've written. I mean, there's it's not just what you've written. You've sometimes been a channel for other work that you've brought together in print. You've edited a book called The Power of Goodness. I knew it and had it in the library of the Quaker meetings I've been part of as uh, lighting candles in the dark. And then there was a second edition or update of it. And now it's called The Power of Goodness. I understand that pretty soon there will be a website where we'll get directly to that. Right now I want to refer people to consciencestudio.com. The link's on nordenspiritradio.org, of course avp.international is another site where you're going to want to go to. And all of this can also be found through friendspeaceteams.org. Some of this will be cross-linked, some of it won't be. So just remember, I'm going to have those three links at least on northernspiritradio.org. Let's talk about creating cultures of peace since you just referenced it, Nadine. You've been doing this training, you've been on the ground, you were doing development work first in Indonesia, and then you've been pulled into further peace work using stuff that built on the Alternatives to Violence program, the AVP program. Uh, so tell me about the book, Creating Cultures of Peace, which came out in 2018. Creating Cultures of Peace is a book that's trying to document and make visible the work that we have found the most effective for ourselves and for our communities. We really wanted to provide as clear a description of the actual activities that we're doing. So there are a lot of group activities. There's also a lot of personal practices because this is an art it's like learning a sport or a musical instrument or something. It is like, oh, I went to that workshop once, so now I know everything about it. These are actual skills that we need to practice. I've been doing this for 40 years now, and if I go more than six months without a basic, I'm like, ooh, uh, I need to like play my scales again for a little while. So keeping the practice alive and fresh and it really focuses on the nonviolence base, being able to distinguish the difference between violence and nonviolence and being able to choose between them. For many people who experience extreme violence, it's the people with guns that are violent, not the fact that I beat people in my family or that we're screaming at each other. So trying to step back and actually be able to say, oh, this is violent and this is not, and be able to tell the difference and understand that there is this transforming power of life that is creative and generative and healing is a tremendous insight for people. Then we work on the, the trauma and the trauma recovery and resiliency work and tools for doing that. And then we work on tools for building our capability and reconstituting the cognition and cognitive skills. That's sort of the package of the personal transformation that gets us strong enough and well enough functioning that we can do this piece work together. There's a second half, which is on social transformation, which really looks at intergenerational cycles of oppression and how prejudice and privilege function together and how we need to break the cycle of oppression. 
And then it moves into personal transformation and how do we make choices based on conscience and develop relationships with other people and with the earth that are designed around communities of love and conscience. And then it looks at discernment and how we make collective thinking and decision making and organizing based on discerning what is right. This is a very different approach to social order, and it's fascinating to watch us actually try it in traditional communities, in large relief efforts, in training centers that we're developing. So all of that, Nadine, is about creating cultures of peace, subtitled A Movement of Love and Conscience. And Nadine Claire Hoover is here today for Spirit in Action. She's sharing some of her work. And it's only some of it because, as you mentioned, there's more than 40 years of this work, which you've passed amazingly to your daughters. And Sarah, I count as a very good friend. I find that your work is inspirational. It certainly inspired them, and it's been transforming people in the U.S. and in other countries. But I did have a question about that. I mean, you're talking about people in Indonesia where they've been facing war, living within war, and then need to recover trauma from that. How much is this applicable to the crazy world we live here in the United States in the age of Trump? And there's so many other nations who have been moving, I'd say, in a conservative or a a counterpiece direction, it feels like to me. Please tell us how you think this applies to people in the U.S. if they're not planning going to Indonesia or Nepal or to the Republic of Georgia. It's my experience in the world that peace is absolutely possible and that it's what we want, that it is our future. Dahlan and Istache said, we will never make peace with each other until we make peace with the earth. My experience, I am trying to come back to North America and do more work here. It's very, very difficult. It's amazing to watch people with some of the most resources and power in the world feel so powerless. To go and work with people who have almost nothing, but they feel like what they're going to do. They're going to step up and they are going to define their lives and their community. I think that we have been a bit paralyzed. I think that what I call corporate colonization, the rise of the corporation of big money and technology has moved faster than we have been able to wrap our minds around it. I think in the United States, we're experiencing the front edge of this sort of corporate colonization through our media, through our food, through our health care, through everything. It's everywhere. And people say, how could I get away from it? I mean, I can't eat if I don't go to the grocery store and buy stuff in single-use plastic. And and so one of the things that in our movement that we have committed to is no single-use plastic. And I tell you, that's way easier in other places besides the United States. It's like you look around and go, wow, how am I going to eat? But It's a new relationship. I think that these practices that we have discovered in some of the most difficult places in the world open a doorway for us to rediscover who we are and who our communities could be. And as we've been applying it here in the United States, we're seeing how developing relationships of love and conscience through what we eat, through how we move around and interact is actually calming people down in in the circles that we're training. They're feeling more joy 
about where they are looking for food. And we find that we can find healthy, organic food. We can get, we can grow it ourselves. We can learn new skills and that those skills are valuable. There was a new book just, well, it's been out for a few years now, but it recently came out called Drawdown that really says what are the effective proven things that we have right now to turn around climate change. Of the 100 top options, the first six or seven are 50% of the difference, and most of those are around food. We need to shift our mindset about what is really valuable and meaningful, and when we get it right, it is so liberating. You know, this is the early language in the United States was the liberty of conscience, the liberty of conscience. When they said, you know, liberty for all, they meant the liberty of conscience, the freedom to do what you know is right, and the freedom that you feel when you feel like what you're doing is right. And I do think that we didn't know, we didn't understand trauma. We didn't understand cycles of oppression. We didn't understand the cognitive effects of, of the level of violence we have. We understand things now that we didn't understand before. But we need skills. And in rural Sumatra, you ask the kids about washing their hands. And they say, you run them underwater. Well, do you use soap? No, 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 no. You don't use soap. That's for the hospital, right? Because they are not around people that they don't know. They are not put together in big institutions. But once we had cities, this medical procedure of thoroughly washing hands with soap becomes an everyday skill, something that everybody should know, not a hospital routine. There are things that we need to understand about trauma that we need to be able to know. Trauma sets in when we feel overwhelmed. We feel overwhelmed when we're alone. If you are starting to feel overwhelmed, do not be alone. Find somebody. Reach out. These spiritual companionship is the foundation of so much of our work. Just that attention alone is one of the greatest anecdotes to trauma. Trauma sets in when you feel paralyzed and you freeze. If you start feeling yourself freeze, do not freeze. Just start describing everything around you. Find one thing that you can do to make a difference. Stay in motion. We need to understand how this works because we're getting all of this input constantly every day. There's all of this news. One of the things is to get off it. Stop listening to it. Get off corporate media. Don't be consuming that diet of horrific news all of the time. But we're going to hear it. And if you're going to be sensitive in the world, you need to learn some tools about how to keep yourself grounded, how to reprocess memory that gets stuck in one part of the brain and is isolated from other parts of the brain. So these tools are things that we say are not technically, we need to not be going to an expert for them. Everyone needs to understand them. Now, there are certain cases where you're going to need professional help. But all of us need to have the basic tools. Folks, you just heard Holding Forth by Nadine Hoover. And she has good reason to hold forth because of her 40-plus years experience in peace movement. And that's peace internally and peace in communities and peace internationally we're talking about here.
She is our guest today for Spirit in Action. NorthernSpiritRadio.org is our website, and on the site you'll find links to Nadine and all of our guests of the past 14 years now it is. Specifically for Nadine, you'll be able to find a link to ConscienceStudio.com. That's the first one I think you should go to. There is FriendsPeaceTeams.org, a really good site with a lot of information. And there's also a couple others. Pretty soon there'll be one called Creating culturesofpeace.org, which is her newest book from 2018. And you'll also find that she is the editor of The Power of Goodness. The Power of Goodness is a wonderful collection of stories. We'll talk about that in a little bit. But all of those links to Nadine and to other guests we've had over these past 14 years are on NorthernSpiritRadio.org, as well as more information which stations across the nation carry Spirit in Action, Song of the Soul, these different Northern Spirit Radio programs. You'll also find a place to post comments, make our communication two-way by commenting and rating our programs and also there's a donate button this is full-time work it's supported only by listeners not by government not by corporations if you want to see it continue we need your help even more importantly though i would say is nadine just mentioned about how corporate media has got such a hold on our minds and our spirits in fact is warping us in very unfortunate ways in order to have an alternative, we need community radio stations. We need programs like the Northern Spirit radio programs you're listening to right now. There's community newspapers. We need all of these alternative forms of media. So I want to especially ask you, number one, go out and support your local community radio station. They do invaluable work in bringing alternative news and music to community. They can touch the heart of a community, while the corporate media will oftentimes work to still the heart, to close it off, to shut it down. So please, start by supporting your community radio station. Again, Nadine Hoover here, and I just mentioned a couple times the power of goodness. And I'd love it if you'd say a few words about the power of goodness, this book that you edited. It has forewords by Pete Seeger and Musa. Akhmadov. I hope I pronounced that fairly well. I'm, I'm not. I don't speak all languages. Having lived in Africa for two years, I got used to language beyond the English that I was born into. So, please tell us a little bit about the power of goodness. I think there's an amazing story there that you got to be part of. Yes, I'm very excited about the power of goodness for a couple reasons particularly. One is it is a tremendous example of how we've been able to carry things across generations. It was a collection of stories that was put together by Philadelphia Yearly Meeting in the 1950s, published in the 1960s. And then Friends General Conference took it over and adjusted the collection a little bit. It was taken then under the care of Friends International Library, took the book and translated it to Russian, which was then taken down into Grozny during the war, the invasion of Russia into Chechnya. And at that point, the Russians and the Chechens said, we have these stories too. And so they took some of the stories out of lighting candles in the dark and then added their own Chechen stories from that region and then stories from the larger area of Russia. And that is the book that we now have that's called The Power of Goodness. We have translated that into English, Russian, and Chechen 
Now it's in Indonesian, it's in Ukrainian, we're moving it into a half a dozen other languages. And as we do that, we're starting to collect news stories. So we are now putting those stories on the friendspeaceteams.org website, and they'll be available to everyone. We're using these stories, they're stories of nonviolence and reconciliation to help young people understand, you know, after the war fervor, after World War II, after the, the wars that have then followed after that. How do we help children understand how nonviolence and reconciliation work when all they've seen around them is violence? And it's through these stories that the children get these ideas in their mind and they'll re- they'll go back to them. Oh, this is a question of fairness. Remember that story about the experiment in fairness? Maybe we could try that. It sounds like a resource that I have to take back to my Quaker meeting, but of course this is good for anybody. This is not for Quakers. Specifically, it was developed in the Quaker universe, if you will, but it, it's much wider. The Chechens, the all these other countries, Georgia, they're not necessarily Quakers, but they're doing this peace and reconciliation and healing type work, and they've got their stories in there. Could you relate a couple that are from outside of the United States that have been brought into the fold that you edited into The Power of Goodness? The new additions that have been brought into the collection with the power of goodness in Chechnya, they involve some of the stories are traditional stories of Junta Haji, who is a leader who called the people to be a people of peace and the messages that he taught to them. And weeding the garden is one of the stories about committing to live off the fruits of your own labor and to understand where labor and exploitation, where those lines are in the world. But there's also stories of Adlan and some of the friends, the people that we work with, who actually how, as young people, how they dealt with the fact that that war came into their territory and uh, how they reached out to people and helped people and fed people and kept moving. Like I was saying before, trauma sets in when you freeze and you give up. And these are stories of how people don't give up and how they find their way forward. There's also a beautiful story in here about Yusuf Bashir from Palestine. It's a story from when he was 15. He's just graduated from graduate school. So these are people that we know, that people we can know in the world. But the fascinating thing about that story is it his father says, no, I'm not giving up my house. And so the house was occupied. The house was zoned in the occupation. So the upper floors were Israeli only, and the family wasn't allowed to go on the upper floors of their house. But the bathroom and the kitchen were zone, zone B, which is where the Israelis are allowed to be. The Palestinians can go there, but only with permission. For the five years or more that his house was occupied, the family had to ask permission to go to their kitchen in their bathroom. And then the living room was zone C, which is where the Palestinians were, family was allowed to be. But he says, we called it the jail. It really helps us understand like this experience of occupation is like it brings it down into that personal space where we can actually say, oh, this is what it's like to live with that. But then how they find hope and how they find connection with Israelis and how they learn to move forward and work together with the seeds of peace work that they're doing and other work they're doing in their own communities to see each other as real people and real human beings and be able to connect and and call for peace, ask for peace. 
And those are all resources in the book called The Power of Goodness, Art and Stories for a Culture of Peace. I recommend you get a copy, share it with everybody you know. Now, you keep mentioning, by the way, that this was for kids. I've read the stories in Lighting Candles in the Dark. I'm reading these stories, and I'm saying, I need that. Yeah, one of our leaders in the Philippines, Ken Zaparache, says her father says, it's a terrible book. I can't put it down. <laughs> We're using it in several universities in different regions of the world and dozens of high schools and many elementary schools. When you can deliver a message to a fifth or sixth grader well, it's really accessible to everyone. The other thing that I'm so grateful for about the power of goodness is that our friend Subhash uh, Chandra in Nepal said, we've done this really in-depth work. I understand peace and nonviolence so much better now with this 10 or 20 people I'm with. But I walk out the door and there's two or three million people. How do I get from these few people out there? And so the power of goodness gives us stories that really help. We can share them and we can share them broadly. We can share them quickly. And knowing these stories, these stories become a resource in our mind. When we face a problem, one of the kids in Chechnya ran in and said, Mom, Mom, we got this problem. It's like this and this and this. Is there a story in that book you have that's like that? I remember for myself one of the stories about John Woolman, and I remember thinking, like, how do I do this? What do I do? You know, he released himself for a month and went around and traveled and talked to people about how owning slaves was wrong. And then the next year he releases himself for two months and then three months. And this is not enough time. I need to do this more. So he took up tent making, right? He could carry it around behind himself. He could work for four hours a day, and he could go around and travel and talk to people and say, this owning of slaves is wrong. It has to stop. So, you know, when I realized we need to go around and tell each other peace is possible, and it's not only possible, it is what we need to survive. We can do it. And when you realize this is what will help us survive on the planet, and we know how to do it, we've got tools to do it now, but we have to go around house to house, room to room, person to person, and share those stories. And so getting the book, sharing these stories, gives us the resources we need and the references in our mind of how we can do this work. Again, the book is The Power of Goodness, Arts and Stories for a Culture of Peace. Nadine Hoover is the editor for this, and it's a collection of stories from all over, not just from the United States or from European culture, it's worldwide culture, talking about the resources we need for peace. You'll be able to get to that via conscienstudios.com, and there's a couple other sites you'll want to follow from nordenspiritradio.org, there's friendspeaceteams.org, avp.international, there's going to be creatingculturesofpeace.org. All of these things are stuff that you'll find on nordenspiritradio.org, follow it from there. I wanted to ask you about some personal stuff. Last November, you were doing a training in Nepal. You were trying to help increase the peace there and to give people additional resources, Nadine, when you fell sick. And it was life and death. And your daughter, Sarah, who's a friend of mine, contacted me and a handful of other friends, and we were all sending light and prayers. And, and Quakers say, you know, holding you in the light, but I, I was being with you in while you were there. Could you talk a little bit about, number one, what you're doing in Nepal? And, I mean, this is right in the middle of a training that this happens. 
And one of my questions was going to be, in all this piecework that you've been part of for all these years, have you been in a life-threatening situation? Of course, I realized you had. I figure there's been other life-threatening situations as well. But please tell me what it's like to be doing peace training and then be have your life just hanging by a thread. Yes, last November 2018, we had just finished eight days of training. We had brought in the Community Self-Reliance Center, had brought in people from schools, orphanages, the land rights movement. There are people from many different, the universities there. And we had just finished a training. We took one day off, and we were just about to start an eight-day training with the landless and land poor alone. And that day, I blacked out. They took me to the hospital. It turned out that it was a teacher training hospital, so they had equipment. And I was very lucky. They treated it. I had fallen and hit my head, and they thought it was a head injury. And they were discharging me for a head injury. And then one of the ER doctors said, well, it's a little bit of a long shot, but I'd like to do an angiogram. And I asked him later, you know, you look on the website and pulmonary embolisms are very fatal. Many people die within the first three to five minutes, but most people die from not being diagnosed. So I went back to the ER doctor later and said, how did did you do that? Because once you're diagnosed, it's standard medical care. And they did a great job. They did exactly what anybody, any of the doctors would have done in the United States or Australia. And so once you're under treatment, the fatality rate goes pretty much away. And he said, well, you weren't finishing your sentences. You were taking a breath in the middle of your sentences. And I thought that didn't seem right. A head injury wouldn't cause that. And I said, well, thank you, because it's the diagnosis that matters. So later on, I went back to the United States. I got very good care and treatment. And then I wanted to go to Indonesia. And the doctor said, that, does, that doesn't sound good. I said, why not? Well, you'll be far away from U.S. medical care. I said, I had breast cancer. Some people with breast cancer have clotting problems. Nobody told me that. I got cellulitis in my left leg and a leg inj- major leg injury. It went up above the knee. You have a leg injury and you're on long flights. It causes pulmonary embolisms. Nobody told me that. I fell right after that and tore the muscles in my right, right leg. I had two leg injuries. I got, the day I got off crutches, I flew to France. None of these doctors said anything about pulmonary embolisms. <laughs> I was exhausted. I was telling the doctors I was exhausted. I said, none of you diagnosed it. The Nepali doctor diagnosed it. So... I'm not too concerned. I will be close to a hospital. I think that it's under, it's, I guess we, we go from experience, right? I had internal infections for almost 18 years. They almost killed me. And it wasn't until I went to a research hospital in Indonesia, they said, oh, we know what this is. And they actually charged me $7.48 to diagnose it and treat it and cure me something that was almost killing me. So we have to understand that there's a knowledge base through, throughout the world. And yes, there's some things that we're very good at in the United States, but there's very good medical care in many places. Sometimes we can get into, I go to places that are far away from the medical care, and we just need to be very conscious of that and aware of that and have access to some transportation. 
So, Nadine, was that time in Nepal the only brush with death that you've had while you're doing this peace work around the world and living in Indonesia? And I mean, you you've spent so many so much time overseas, and you, I, I believe, you've worked with all of the most threatening, from the American point of view, threatening groups. I know you're talking about ISIS or whomever. You've been working with people who. A lot of people who are interested in peace, but a lot of people who are seen as the cause of violence. Has your life been threatened before? I go and meet with people who are considered very dangerous, but I don't go in with an agenda. I go in because somebody in that community is very concerned about their family and their children, and they see any place that's promoting violence. And acting out large-scale public violence, the most likelihood is that there is tremendous internal violence and domestic violence. There's a lot of violence among within the families, and so people are suffering, and they want it to change. And change is very hard from the inside. And so they go. I had one day. This one guy calls me and says, "Would you come and visit my village?" I'm like, "Sure." He calls the next day and says, "Ah, it's not going to work." He calls the next day, will you come and visit my village? He calls the fourth day and says, I don't know what I was thinking. It's not going to work. I almost asked him, but I thought better of it, and I shut off the phone, and I said, hey, Petros, Sunandi wants me to come and visit his village. Petros went white, and these four Islamic women who were sitting on the floor, they're covered, you know, they're covered. Um, they leapt up and leapt in front of me, and they said, no, 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 you can't go there. We are not Muslim enough. These people march their preschool kids and their elementary kids out into the courtyard every morning and act out cutting off the heads of non-believers, and that means us Muslims who they don't think are good enough Muslims. You cannot go there. So I called Sun back and I said, "But Sun, I just happen to be free at seven o'clock on Friday morning. I I can stop by then. I'll see you then. Bye." And I hung up. Number one, he doesn't know how to answer. Number two, he is has a position. He is married to the head imam's daughter. If he and his wife invite me into the village, they might drive me out, but they can't hurt me because if they hurt me, they create a family feud that nobody wants. I grew up in a small closed. Community in northern Appalachia, the idea of entertainment was to look find somebody you didn't know and beat the crap out of them. I understand closed communities, so as long as he's inviting me in, he and his wife, there is no way that I'm going to get hurt. I may not la- I may not be there very long, but when I came, we're standing in the courtyard, and he just they just look pale. They don't know what to do. And I put my hands behind my back and clasp my hands. You're not touching me. Like the, we usually shake hands. Like no, 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 not here. And he's looking at me. He says, "Well, come in." And he points towards his house. And I said, "Well, no. Let's go see the head imam." And he goes, "What?" But now you know, shock. You, you're not using your full brain capacity. And we talk about lending your confidence or lending your executive functioning. And I said, "Patsun, this is Indonesia." In Indonesia, you always go and say hello to the oldest person. Once you do that, you're free to do whatever you want. But we can't. I can't come here and not go and say hello. So he started walking me towards the imam's door, and suddenly you couldn't see anybody anywhere. Suddenly, there's like thirty men, like they're all standing there, and they're standing between this imam who's standing in his door and me and Sun, which. 
They just don't want me to touch him. They don't know what they'll do. They've never had an outsider there, right? They don't know what to do. So I did this very formal Javanese greeting. And it's very long and it goes, you know, thank you so much for receiving me. I'm so honored to be here. You're so gracious to allow me to come. I, I mean no offense. If I do anything that's offensive, please let me know. From the cradle to the grave, please forgive me for any of my transgressions. I have no in bad intentions in my heart. I am just so honored to be allowed to come and be among you. And you repeat this three different times at length. And he's standing there, and they're all looking like, whoa, okay. But I also know he doesn't know what to say. So I said, thank you very much. And I turned around to walk away. And they're like, phew, okay, good. And as I'm walking away, I timed this, and it actually worked out, which was really pretty cool. Right as I'm walking away, the preschool kids come out, because it's Friday, and they're going to come out early before the prayers. And I go, ah, children. Now the men go to the mosque for prayers on Friday, but the women don't have to go. So I put my hat, head in the preschool, and it looks like a an 1850s horror movie. It is dirty and harsh, and it's, it's rough. And I look in, and I go, no toys. And they look at me like I'm crazy. I go, what are you? And they just, they're just, they're in shock, like a white, European face in their door they've never even imagined. And I said, I've never done this before. I'm a little bit ashamed, Mark, but <laughs> oh well. I said, Wanna go shopping? And they went, Yes. Everything in their body wanted to say no, but they're like, Yes. We spent six hours. We went to the hardware store. We went to the household supply store. We went to the cake baking store. We went all over town. And I took these six women and I gave them instruction in early childhood development. We took everything down off the shelves. I was showing them how to play with them, how to work with kids. There were like 120 people around us watching this whole thing. So you have this incredible thing that's going on in the community. Like everybody's learning. Everybody wants this. It's good for their children. These are the most conservative-minded women they know of in the community sitting there with a white American Quaker woman. It's just like they don't even know what to do. And we got buckets of water, and, and all of the boys are running and finding every cup they can find. And we're like pouring water from cups to cups. And, and I'm like, look, that's not standard measure. That's not standard measure because they don't use standard measure very well in Indonesia. And then we got one. And it's like, maybe this one will work. And I poured in the first cup, and I poured in the second cup. And as I'm pouring in the second cup, the last drop goes down, and it's perfect. Two of these, perfectly one of these. And the rickshaw drivers were sitting beside me because I was, like, on the street gutter doing it. And they leapt. They erupted. They went, ah! And, like, it's the first time in their life they ever saw standard measure and understood it. And I said... This is what would be good for your children because this is the difference between exporting and not exporting. If you can't do standard measure, you can't export. And they're like, oh. And I spent three days with this. They, are, they are, were considered one of the most violent, most committed to Islamic Jihad in Southeast Asia. They were a training site. When you can reach in there and touch the hearts of people and change them, the ripple effects are amazing. In fact, there was nonviolence work that was going on in Afghanistan that later on they're like, no, no, that's fine. You can do that. I'm like, why did they let you do that? They said, you don't know? They heard that there was a white American woman doing that same stuff in this village. 
and one other very, very conservative village. And they said, they're way more conservative than we are in Kabul. If it's okay there, it's okay here. And so these connections in the world, like what we do matters. And several years later, a young, a young guy came to do some interviews and video stuff. And they, he asked them, why did you let her come? Why did you let her stay? Because I've been going back every six months. And they said, because the sole of her foot touched the imam's hearth before it touched anywhere else. You see, it was that show of respect. I'm not here. I'm not a threat. You have complete control. It's fine. We're okay. And it was that show of respect. It was, it's just amazing. About the third year I was going, it was about my fifth, fifth or sixth trip, the imam got very sick. And as I'm approaching, he saw me from a distance and he just lit up. And he said, Nadine, Nadine, please, I am very ill. Please pray for me. And the minute he said it, he realized that was a mistake. And everybody's staring at him and he says, well, everybody according to their own faith. And he, literally, you would have thought the guys that were standing me with, by, beside me had gotten hit in the chest. They all like stumbled backwards. They were so shocked. But it's that real living, the spirit lives in that direct relationship between people and between us and the earth. That's where the transformative power exists. That's why peace is possible. You have to get the, the mediated layers off the top and then just reach out and touch each other as real human beings on a planet. Wow. Wow. <laughs> and that's just one of many stories that Nadine Hoover could share with you. You'll get all kinds of intimations of the kind of experience she's had. She's been part of bringing transforming peace into the world by getting the book, The Power of Goodness, which she edited. This is collections of stories from all over the world. How does peace really happen? We need those resources and that inspiration. Also, get her 2018 book, Creating Cultures of Peace, A Movement of Love and Conscience. All of this stuff you're going to find, come to NordenSpiritRadio.org. Follow the links to ConscienceStudios.com, to AVP International, to CreatingCulturesOfPeace.org, and especially to FriendsPeaceTeams.org. All of these people, and Nadine in the bosom amongst them, doing this wonderful work for transforming the world. Again, Nadine Hoover has been here today for Spirit in Action. She was founder of Friends Peace Teams Asia West Pacific Initiative. She's a graduate of Friends World College, now called Long Island University Study Abroad Program. She has a Ph.D. in international development and many more and many, many more duties, functions, credentials. Instead of spending the entire hour talking about them, I just want to thank you, Nadine, for this lifetime of work of peace, of transforming, and I thank you especially for giving Sarah as a friend of mine. Thank you for joining me for Spirit in Action. Thank you, Mark. It's a pleasure to be here, and I hope that we can spread the faith and the practice and the experience that peace is possible. My appreciation to Andrew Jansen for production assistance on today's program. We'll see you all next week for Spirit in Action. The theme music for this program is Turning of the World, performed by Sarah Thompson. Check out all things Spirit in Action on northernspiritradio.org. 
guests, links, stations, and a place for your feedback, suggestions, and support. Thanks for listening. I'm Mark Helpsmeet, and I hope you find deep roots to support you to grow steadily toward the light. This is Spirit in Action. With every voice, with every song, we will move this world along, and our lives will feel the echo. 